0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Okay, so the Tenth Commandment. Let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Verse 17, the 10th commandment. It's hard to believe we're already at the 10th one. There's 10 of them. (laughs) So Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So the 10th commandment has to do with coveting, coveting. And so Jesus said in Luke twelve fifteen, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So covetousness is a word we probably don't use a lot, but it means to be covetous, to covet. So the question is, okay, if the Tenth Commandment about coveting, what does it mean to covet? What does that word mean? Well, to covet is to crave, to yearn for. It shouldn't be year for, it should be yearn for. Or have a sinful desire for something or someone that does not belong to you. It's not simply wanting something you don't have or can't have it's wanting something or someone that someone else has sometimes to the degree that you desire harm or misfortune for them i want what you have i don't want you to have that so i can have it and i want you to have some problems or have misfortune because i'm jealous of you having that that's that's covening okay thomas watson called covening An insatiable desire of getting the world. What does insatiable mean? Do you guys know what the word insatiable means? Somebody tell me. You can't can't satisfy it. It doesn't satisfy you. Now, what is the first instance of coveting in the entire Bible? And and it seems like in all these commandments, we keep going back to Genesis. But that's where it all begins. So in Genesis chapter 3, when Eve is tempted by the serpent... What does the serpent tell her? And then what is the first coveting that happens here? God knows that when you eat of it, that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her and he ate eve coveted did she covet the 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 fruit or what the fruit would bring her What the fruit would bring her okay and remember we talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago one of the lies that satan gives to adam and eve in the garden is that god's not good that he's withholding something and so there must be something out there that, that they can't have, that God's holding out on them and he can't be trusted. And so she covets what she can't have. Um, and God only gave them one command. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that one tree. Okay. But notice how this passage of Scripture defines coveting. It's pretty specific. Notice, notice what it says there. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Okay. That's Greed. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. That's lust. Don't covet your neighbor's possessions. That's materialism. Possessions. His um, oxen and donkeys and servants. And then notice the very last phrase in verse 17. Or anything that is your neighbor's. So that's the, that closes the loophole, doesn't it? <laughs> anything that belongs to... Somebody else. Now, a lot of the material tonight has been helpful from Thomas Watson. Again, Thomas Watson was a Puritan. Um, He wrote the Ten Commandments book um, back in the 1600s, and I've learned a lot from him. But he he gives six ways. So this is coming from him. Six ways that we covet. So here's number one. This is from him. These are his ideas. Number one, we covet... When our thoughts are entirely consumed with worldly things. Our thoughts. When all you think about are the things of this world, the things that you can't have, the things that you want, when that's all that's going through your your mind, your thoughts. Number two, he says, we covet when we spend great energy on getting things of the world instead of seeking Christ. All of our energy, all of our resources, all of our time and effort and energy goes towards the things of the world. That's when we covet. Number three, so your mind, you think about, your energies, what you put time into. Number three, he says, you covet when all we talk about are worldly pursuits and not things of the gospel. So not just your thoughts, but your, what your speech is. And then he says this, number four, when we set our hearts on worldly possessions and pursuits and will very easily exchange or part with the things of Christ. Matthew thirteen twenty two. This is the parable of the soils. You know, the sower goes out and sows the seed and it falls on four different types of soil. The, the third soil is an interesting soil and this is what Jesus says about the third soil. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. number five when we overwhelm ourselves with worldly pursuits and have too many irons in the fire and then number six we know we're coveting when we may resort to illegal or unethical means to gain worldly pursuits okay you know it's gotten really bad when there's something that you want and you will do anything to get it even if it's illegal unethical or immoral you will get it so Coveting is your heart, your speech, everything about you is focused on the things of this world. Now, I want you to notice something tonight about the Tenth Commandment. The uniqueness of the Tenth Commandment. This is the only commandment that deals with the internal heart and not outward actions. Is coveting something that you do as an outward action? Or is it something that starts in your heart or in your mind? What's murder? Is that something you do? Outward action? Yes. Is adultery something you do outward action? Is stealing something you do outward action? Is lying something you do outward action? Is disobeying your parents something you do outward action? Yes. Is breaking the Sabbath? What? What? Idolatry can be done in your heart. Yeah. This does not mention any outward actions. It talks about craving or coveting in your heart. Now, it's very important because from the beginning, especially with Israel, and obviously for us as believers today, God wanted Israel to hide His law in their hearts. Deuteronomy 6, 5-6. through You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So that's where it all starts with, is your heart. And then in Deuteronomy 10, 16, it's an interesting metaphor here. God says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Okay, what in the world does it mean to to circumcise the foreskin of your heart? Do we have... Women, do you have foreskin on your heart? Okay. Do we have foreskin on our hearts? Not literally, but when it talks about, like, God does this surgery on our hearts so that our hearts are drawn towards Him, that we don't have these stubborn hearts. So everything goes back to the heart, internal. Now, if you remember, the first nine commandments... We, we said there was the, the actual commandment itself, but then there were all the implications that flowed from the commandment, and they all came back to the heart. The 10th commandment actually can be said to be breaking all the first... The 10th commandment... Actually, you could be breaking all of the other nine commandments by breaking the 10th commandment. That's why I think it's last. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. If it's coveting, if it's in your heart... Let's let's think about the commandments here. Let's go back and review. First commandment. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods. Okay. When we covet another God over the one true God, even that means ourselves as taking the place of God, we're breaking the first commandment. You can break it by coveting another God than the God that's the true God. Okay. Second commandment. What's the second commandment? You shall make no carved images and bow down and worship them. We may not bow down to a carved idol, but we may have elevated money and possessions as idols we worship and crave those things, covet those things, made those things idols. What's the third commandment? Don't misuse or use the Lord's name in vain. Third commandment, we may justify our sinful desires and neglect or misuse the name of the Lord in the process. So we could actually be breaking the third commandment through coveting. Number four. The Lord's Day. Remember the the Sabbath day and keep it holy we talked about? Now it's the Lord's Day. Instead of honoring the Lord on His day of worship, we desire worldly pursuits that take us out of assembling with other believers. We covet being somewhere else than in church. What's the fifth commandment? Obeying your parents. We may covet only what our parents give us material and only honor them when it's convenient for us. What's the sixth commandment? Murder. We may covet what someone else has and harbor bitterness or angerness in our hearts, which Jesus equates with murder. Remember last week King Nahab, I mean King Ahab? What did he desire? Naboth's vineyard. Was he coveting? He was coveting what somebody else had. And what did his wife say? Don't be a wimp, king, let's get it. And what did she do? She hired two worthless men to come and bear false witness, and then they killed Ahab and basically stole his vineyard. Where did all that start with? King Ahab's coveting what he couldn't have, the vineyard. Okay. What's the seventh commandment? You shall not commit adultery. We may not outwardly commit adultery, but we may lust after another person and commit adultery in our hearts. What is, what is, adul- what is lust anyway? If you're married and you're lusting, what are you coveting? Somebody else's wife, somebody else's husband, somebody else that doesn't belong to you. Okay? That's what coveting is when it comes to lusting. What's the eighth commandment? You shall not steal. Coveting is the root sin that actually leads to stealing. Remember Achan? We talked about stealing. What did Achan? Remember Achan? We talked about him a few weeks ago. He stole the devoted items, and then he got stoned. In Joshua 7.21, he tells the reason why he stole. Joshua 7.21, when they're questioning him, he says, When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. What comes first, stealing or coveting, according to Achan? I coveted them, and then I... Took them. Okay? What's the ninth commandment? We looked at it last week. Bearing false witness. The reason we may lie or bear false witness is that we covet being recognized or being in in on the juicy gossip or somehow, quote-unquote, getting paid back for lying. Here's why the last commandment is there and why it's an issue of the heart. It's the last commandment to remind us that This is not just about outward actions. It always goes back to the heart. God's not just after our outward obedience. Yes, He is, but it actually is obedience that comes from the heart first. And that's why this last commandment deals with the heart as opposed to outward actions. Martin Luther said this when he was commenting on the 10th commandment. He said, this commandment is addressed not to those whom the world considers wicked rebels, but precisely the most upright, to people who wish to be commended as honest and virtuous because they have not broken the first nine commandments. Think about that. Well, I haven't stolen anything, and I haven't committed adultery, and I haven't killed anybody, and I haven't lied. I'm good. What's the tenth commandment say? Check your heart, because you may have done all those things in your heart First. Now, what does the Bible say about secret desires of the heart? Are there such a thing as sins deep in your heart that you can't sometimes see? What was the condition of the earth before God flooded it? Genesis 6 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's scary that's a that's not believe we we believers we don't have that because we've been regenerated but before the flood the earth was so corrupt what was the source look at that verse very carefully what was the source of wickedness every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually so what led to wickedness? What led to wicked actions on the earth that God decided to flood it? Continual evil, action, evil thoughts of the heart. Continually. All the time. Multiply that by how many people were on the earth. And it was like wickedness all the time. 24-7. The thoughts and wicked. Okay, that's, that's non-believers. Okay, but as Christians, are there blind spots that we have in our hearts where we sometimes can't see sin? When David talks about the nature of God's word in Psalm 19, he asks this prayer of, of the Lord in Psalm 19, 12 through 13. Who can discern his errors? In other words, sometimes we really can't discern sin in our lives. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Do you have hidden (coughs) faults? Psalm 90, verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Is there such a thing as a secret sin? not with an omniscient God that knows all things, okay? Can you hide anything? We're very good at hiding it from others, aren't we? And sometimes we can even hide it from ourselves, but can we hide it from God? Okay. So we pray and ask the Lord to do only what God can do, and that's why I really like Psalm 139. 23 and 24 because I think that sometimes we have such blind spots we need God to do the searching so Psalm 139 23 and 24 this is a prayer to God search me O God and know my heart try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting now let me ask you a theological question does God know your heart and your thoughts before you pray so is this prayer asking God to do something like God, I know you don't know what's in my heart. And God, I know you don't know what's in my mind. So, so please do something. Is that what David's asking God to do? Whose benefit is it for? Is it for God's or for David's? It's for, it's for David's and by extension us. We don't know our hearts. We don't know our thoughts. We don't know those secret sins. And so sometimes we have to ask God to expose those to us so that we can repent. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, what is the role of the law in the life of people? Paul specifically talks about coveting in relation to what the purpose of the law is. Romans 7, 7-8. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now let's just stop right there. What's Paul saying? you automatically, because you're sinful, have desires. What does the law of God, the Ten Commandments, come along and do? It puts a name on those so that you know what they are. And so Paul says, I would not have known that it was really coveting unless the Bible said, Thou shalt not covet. And once I heard, Thou shalt not covet, guess what happened? My sinful nature just wants to fight against that and wants to keep coveting. And so part of the role of the Ten Commandments is to expose sin for what it is, to call it out. Paul says that in Romans 13:9. "For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word: "You shall love your neighbor as yourself." All right, why do you sin? you're a sinner that's a great answer so let's talk about james here for a moment let no one say when he's tempted i'm being tempted by god for god cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by what his own desire okay what does it say next his own desire then desire when it has conceived gives birth to what sin and sin when it's full grown brings forth okay do you see the imagery here what wording is used here birth conceived full grown does death is that where it starts where does it start with the desire, and if you act upon that desire and actually commit the sin, if you don't repent and continue in unrepentant sin and don't trust Christ for salvation, ultimately it's going to give final um, result in death. First John two sixteen through seventeen. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. The pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Okay. Sinful desires. Coveting goes right to the heart of your desires. Now, what are the four stages of sinful desire? James kind of talks about this. Number one, you have what are called spontaneous or sudden desires. One that catches you off guard. Okay. Oh, I have a desire. What, what can you, when that desire manifests itself, what can you do in that moment? You have two choices. What's the, what's the two choices? One, you can kill it, pray, ask the Lord to, to give you grace. Or you can, number two nurse, or meditate on that desire. Hmm, this desire looks pretty good. I want to think about it. I want to mull it over in my mind. I'm going to think about it. I may even fantasize about what's going to happen. Then, number three, you make a premeditated plan to act on the desire. And then number four, what do you do? You actually act on the desire, the the deed itself. Now, our men are doing a study on temptation on Monday mornings. Is temptation in and of itself a sin? No, because Jesus was tempted in all ways we are, but yet without sin. Temptation is not the sin. But when the desire comes, you see the progression here? When the desire comes, when the coveting comes, when that that thing comes, you've got to ask for God's grace to be able to kill that desire. Instead of thinking about it, mulling over it. Because if you think about it and you mull it over and you make a plan, what are you going to end up doing? Acting on it. And sometimes it's so fast that these steps aren't just like da 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 da, da. It's like simultaneously happening all at one time. Okay? So this 10th commandment goes straight to the heart issue um, that the Bible talks about. Now, what are the dangers of coveting? The Bible has a lot to say about coveting. Psalm 10, verse 3. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. The one greedy for gain. How about Ecclesiastes five ten? He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. You're never going to be satisfied with no matter how much you don't have. What's coveting? I want what I can't have. Question, how much is enough of what you don't have? Somebody always has something more, and you're never going to have what you ultimately want to have. And so you're never going to be satisfied if you keep coveting. Okay, listen to the list of sins that Paul gives here in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay, who who are the unrighteous? Now, this doesn't mean that if you've ever committed these sins, you're not going to heaven. This is talking about unrepentant sinners who've never trusted in Christ for salvation, and you continue in this lifestyle. But how does he define unrighteous? Okay, do not be, be deceived. The sexually immoral, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Interesting on the list is, is greedy, those that are greedy. Now, I want you to also notice, and I think, Michelle, you, and, you, you referenced this earlier. Ephesians five five. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. What does that passage of scripture say? If you're covet, it equates being covetous, covet being co- coveting with being an idolater. Because what are you doing? You're worshiping something you can't have to the point that you desire it so badly that it consumes you. You're an idolater at that point. Listen to Colossians 3:5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Again, he calls covetousness idolatry, coveting. Okay? First Timothy 6, 9-10. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Okay, look at the words there. Those who desire, you see that word, desire to be rich, what do you fall into? Okay, you fall into what? Let me You fall into what? Okay, which leads to what? A snare. Which leads to what? You're plunged into ruin and destruction. Do you see the same progression here? It starts with the desire or temptation. It goes into you're snared by it and finally you can't get out. It is through this craving. The word he uses there is craving. James 4, 1 through 2. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. What happens when you covet and you don't get what you want? What does it lead to? Quarreling and fights and disorder in all manner of evil. Thomas Watson gives this other example. He gives a vivid illustration of coveting. So, this is a quote from his book A covetous man is like a bee that gets into a barrel of honey and there drowns itself. As a ferryman takes in so many passengers to increase his fare that he sinks his boat. So a covetous man takes in so much gold to increase his estate that he drowns himself in perdition. What are those two images? What's the one image? The bees in the honey. What, the honey tastes good, doesn't it? I'm in the honey. I'm in this good stuff. And you're so much into all this stuff that seems good that what, what happens next? You drown. Okay. The ferryman. Okay? I know we're not, we don't ride ferries anymore, but let's say like you're the ferryman, like on Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit in those movies. Okay? So people keep coming on. And people keep coming on because you want more money. Okay? The more people pay, the more people come on. What happens when you get a bunch of people on? You sink. And it all started because you wanted more, more people, more money. Um, and so sometimes you can be so caught up in coveting that you don't even know how deep you're in it until it's too late. You're, you're either like, like the bee, you're, you're, you're drowned in your own honey or you're, you're sunk like a, a, a ferryman. All right, let's look at two examples of coveting, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. Number one, we're going to talk about Gideon. Gideon, to me, is like the most disappointing story. I always get angry every time I read Gideon because he starts out so well. Well, not really. Um, Like, let me give you a little background on Gideon. Gideon is a kind of a coward and he's hiding out because the Midianites are raiding the Israelites and they're causing a bunch of problems and he's hiding out and the Lord angel of the Lord comes to him and says mighty man of valor you're gonna go lead the people and Gideon's like who me the one who's hiding out and Lord's like yeah you and so he's like the first thing I want you to do is I want you to go tear down all the all the idols in the town and so Gideon does it at night, so nobody knows it's him. And the next morning, everybody wakes up, who tore down the idols? And then Gideon's dad has to get, do some interference and say it was my son, but he didn't really know what he was doing. And then like, he goes like, Lord, if, if you're really going to be on my side, you've got to let me know. So he does the whole fleece where he puts out the fleece and the dew and all that kind of stuff. And then God says, I'm on your side. So uh, you have too many men to go fight the battle. So we need to wean. Uh, I, I can't remember. I was like, yeah, you have 22,000 people. You need to get it down to three hundred. So you got too many. So so Gideon fights the battle with three hundred men, and he whoops up on them, and Israel wins. And so you got this great story of this kind of um, guy who is unsure of himself, and the Lord fights his battle, and instead of having this huge army, it's pared down to 300, and then things are, are good in Israel, the, the battle's been won, and, and you'd think Gideon's a big guy now, right? It's a pretty impressive to take 300 men and destroy the enemy. And so let's pick up in the story in Judges chapter 8, verse 22. Everybody there? Judges 8. I gave you a real short history of Gideon there, but he, he's, he's a hero to the Israelites. And here's what happens. Verse 22. The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule, rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, "'Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil.' For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, "'We will willingly give them.' And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil." And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in a city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jerubal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abirzerites." Okay. What's the deal here? Israel is so impressed with Gideon's leadership that what do they come to him and say? Hey, we want you to be our king. Has there been a king in Israel yet, historically? No King Saul, only judges, these military leaders, had God raised up. But the Israelites were like, you're such an awesome dude, Gideon. We want, you. We, want to create, we want you to create a dynasty. We want you to rule over us. We want your son to rule over us. We want your grandson. We want this succession of leaders. And what does Gideon say? Oh, wait a minute. You, you, no, don't do that. Look at verse 23. I'm not going to rule over you. My son's not going to rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now, does, That sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds very theological. Sounds very uh, good church answer, answer. You'll get a clue later on in the, in, the, in the text as to if he really means it or not. And then out of the blue, Gideon says, hey, bring all of your gold and all of the spoils and, and let me make an ephod. And you may thinking, well, what's an ephod? Is it that thing you listen to, the music on it? No, that's an iPod or an iPad. It's not an ephod. What was an ephod? He made himself an ephod. And you may think, so what? Gideon made an ephod. But notice what it says. All Israel whored after it there. What was an ephod? It's very important to know what an ephod was. An ephod. What was that? Yeah. Yeah, an ephod was part of the high priest's attire. If you go back to Exodus 28, you go back to Exodus 39. It was made of costly stones. It had the breastplate attached with the 12 precious stones, with the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, it, was this, it was the priestly garment, the ephod. Only a Levite priest was to wear the ephod. Question Was Gideon a Levite priest? Absolutely not. So, why in the world is he creating an ephod out of the spoils? You see, the ephod was only to be worn by the high priest on the Day of Atonement, where he and only he would go into the Holy of Holies and make make sacrifice for the people. In this whole story, and you probably have to read the whole story to answer the question, but I'll answer it for you. Do you have any mention of the Ark of the Covenant or of the Tabernacle or anything related to the priesthood in this entire story? It's markedly absent. Why would the priest wear the ephod? Numbers 27.21 says, He, that's the high priest, shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. and his word they shall go out, and his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. When you wore the ephod in a sense, you became the spokesperson for God. You became the the delivery person for God's message to the people. You were basically God's man at the moment to receive direction for the people so that the people would know what to do. So we have to ask the question, what was Gideon's motivation for taking the place of the priest and creating his own ephod? We don't know, because sometimes Hebrew narratives don't tell us the thoughts of the person, but we can take a guess. It could be, this is my guess, it could be that pride went to his head in the defeat of the Midianites with such a small army of 300, and now he wants to be a channel for God's direct guidance instead of the priesthood. What's he coveting? Winning the battle and being the man is not enough. I actually want the power that comes with the priesthood because I look at the priest and they've got this special connection with God and they've got the Urim and the Thurim and they can give directions. And so I'm just going to create this whole ephod for myself. In other words, Gideon, here's coveting. Gideon wanted more than what God had given him. That's coveting, wanting more than what God has given you. What's the result in verse 27? And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in the city of Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it there, and it became what? A snare to Gideon and his family. Three ironies happen, Okay. Three ironies as a result of this. Number one, although the land is at rest for 40 years, look at verse 28, so Midian was subdued before the people of Israel and they raised their heads no more and the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. That's a long time. 40 years. If you go back and read the book of Judges, I know our men did this a a couple months back. Um, The cycle is these invading armies would come in and Israel would be overtaken and they would cry out to God and God would raise up a leader and the leader would deliver them. And then once things would go back to peace, it would say they would have peace for so many years and then the pattern would happen again. They never learned their lesson. But here's the question. They may have been at peace from their enemies for 40 years, but during those 40 years, are they living in peace with God? What does verse 27 say? All Israel whored after the ephod, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Number two, Gideon somehow commits polygamy and has many wives and concubines. And one of his concubines, number three, he actually has a concubine, and the son of his concubine he names Abimelech. What does Abimelech mean? My father is king. Now think about the irony there. What did, what did they want to make Gideon? Will you be our king? And he says, No, I won't be your king. My son won't be your king. The Lord be your king. But then when he has a son from a concubine, what does he name the son? Gideon's the king. Now, if you want to read some, the rest of the story, Abimelech's terrible. I mean, he goes and just. I mean, it's a terrible story of what he does. And so you may have to ask in a question. In retrospect, did Gideon want to be king after all? He's probably thinking to himself, I won the battle with 300. I'm the man. And I'm going to feign this humility. Oh, you know, don't, don't make me king. Don't make me king. I'll just make myself an ephod. And I'll be the channel for God. And then I'll just make my son... We'll name him, my dad, as king. So you see a man that starts out so well, and God uses, but the end of his life is really idolatry. idolatry, How does Paul relate idolatry and coveting? Doesn't he relate those two together? If you go back to those Colossians passages and those Ephesians passages, idolatry, coveting, go together. Is that what not he did? He, He basically created, this was a false idol, an ephod, that he used to somehow give him the mojo, I guess, if you will to be God's conduit for direction. Okay? So that's one example of coveting in the Old Testament. Let's look at the New Testament. Let's look at the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10 17 through 31. This is a direct encounter with Jesus and the rich young ruler, and we find a lot about coveting in the response of this young man. So Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. I'll wait till you guys all get there. Mark 10, 17 through 31. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Well, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. All right. I call this evangelism Jesus style. How does Jesus, how does Jesus interact with this rich young girl? It's very interesting what Jesus says and what he doesn't say and what he does and what he doesn't do in relation to this man. First of all, what does Jesus do? Jesus starts with the attributes of God the Father to demonstrate God's goodness and holiness. Now, the, the, the man comes in and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when Jesus says, Don't call me good, it's not like Jesus is not good. It's not what Jesus is saying there. Jesus is saying, Listen, let's not get the cart before the horse. If we're going to start this conversation, you need to understand who God the Father is. Don't come to me with what I can do to inherit eternal life. You need to first start with who God is. Notice what he says. No one is good except God alone. God is our creator. God is our father. He is holy. He's righteous. That's where Jesus starts with the glory and majesty of God. But notice what he does secondly. Jesus uses the law or the Ten Commandments that we've been looking at as a schoolmaster to convict this man of his sin and awaken his conscience for his need of a Savior. He takes him through most of the second half of the Ten Commandments. And what does the guy say? What's the guy say? Hey, I've been good. I've done these ever since I was a kid. No big deal, Jesus. I, I, I checked those off. Okay. Well, you broke the lying one. But to him, what's he thinking? What's he thinking about the commandments? I haven't committed adultery. Let's look at what he says there. Okay. I haven't murdered. I haven't committed adultery. I'm not a thief. I've never bore false witness. I've never defrauded anybody. I've honored my father and mother. I'm good. What's he thinking? When it comes to outward actions, I've done pretty good. But are the commandments about outward actions? They're about the heart. And so the law here is supposed to expose you. Like if, if somebody comes to you, and I've done this illustration many times before, it's from the way of the master. You, you go to somebody and you start going through the law with them, one of two things are going to happen. They're either going to start excusing themselves that they're not that bad or the law is going to really expose what they're doing as bad. And The role of the law is to really expose our hearts. And so that's why Paul says in Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. Okay. Most people out there on the streets... Don't think they're sinful. What will they say? Exactly what this rich young ruler does. I've never killed anybody. I've never done anything bad. I don't lie that often. I don't steal that much. I'm pretty much a good person. And what are they measuring their standard to? Either somebody else or outward actions. So when you go through the law and you start exposing these things to people, it's supposed to give them a knowledge that they're sinful. What is God's standard? 100% perfection 100% of the time. Can anybody live up to that? No, None of us can do that. So the role of the law is to show you that the rich young ruler should have said, holy cow. Maybe not that. They wouldn't have said that back then. Holy camel. <laughs> I don't know. He should have said, oh my goodness. I realize how much of a wretch, wretched sinner I am, Jesus, and You've exposed my heart, and I, I I see you. I see you for who you are. What did Jesus say to the church in Laodicea? Revelation 3:17. You say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. A lot of people walk around, I'm good with God. I have no problems. Outward behavior modification, I'm great. And Jesus says, no, you're not. Actually, you're blind, you're poor, you're naked, and you're wretched. And so what does Jesus do? He uses the law here to expose this man's heart. And it's, he's, he's, he's like, I'm good. And so Jesus says, okay, I'm going to go to the 10th commandment. Or I'm going to go to the first commandment. You take your pick. The first commandment and the 10th commandment are intrinsically linked. Does he go to the man's idolatry or does he go to coveting?" You take your pick. What does he tell him? Third thing he says here. He urges the man to repent. What does he say to him? Verse 20. Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. There's one thing you need. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What's Jesus hitting at? His possessions. Now, it could either be his possessions to become an idol, or he was not willing to give those up because he was coveting what other people have. You take your pent. What Jesus is saying here is, listen, young man, you can try to keep all the commandments outwardly, But it is no substitute for the self surrender to the absolute claims of Jesus on your life through his gospel. What does Jesus tell him? Go sell all that you have, you will have treasure in heaven, and come do what? Follow me. That's a present imperative, it's a command. It's the present tense command, which means to continually, as a lifestyle, follow Jesus. It's not a one-time decision. It's not, I signed on the dotted line. I went forward at the altar call. I got baptized. It's no, you need to come after me in faith and follow me with your entire life. That's true repentance. He's basically getting to the heart of the guy's issue. What is repenting? Being able to give up sin in order to follow jesus he had to be willing to turn from that idol what was the idol what was his idol his possessions first thessalonians 1 9 says about repentance how you turned to god from idols to serve the living and true god so he challenged him at his point of repentance there's one thing you lack now let's not get this wrong Jesus is not telling you in order to be saved, you've got to sell everything you've got. That's not what he's saying. To that man specifically it was, the principle for us is we've got to be willing to give up anything that we were going to have as an idol that takes the place of God in order to trust Jesus. Whatever that is, we've got to be willing to give it up to follow him. And then the fourth thing Jesus does here is Jesus challenges the man to trust in him personally. What does he say? If you do all this, you will have treasure in heaven. Who's standing right in front of him? Jesus. And Jesus is basically saying to him, I'm offering you myself as Savior, Lord, and treasure as a substitute for your possessions. That's a great exchange. Jesus saying, you can have me as your personal Lord and Savior Or you can hold on to your possessions. Which one do you want to go with? What was more alluring? What was more brilliant? What was more powerful? What was more beautiful and glorious than Jesus Christ Himself to this man? His possessions. He did not see Jesus for the glory He was right before Him. Now what happened to the man? Look at verse 22 disheartened by the saying he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions and jesus hunted him down and begged him and said please don't go i want you to be my, i want to be your savior so uh, i'll lower the bar and tell you it's really not about all your possessions just is that what you see in your bible does jesus chase after him here's the fifth thing we see Jesus truly loved him. It says he looked at the man and loved him. Jesus truly loved this man, but he didn't lower the bar on salvation in order to close the deal. Jesus wouldn't win a lot of awards for evangelism that day. What would we be tempted to do? Oh, it's, it's not that... We're not that radical... You know, you can still live in sin. Just ask Jesus into your heart. You really don't have to give up all that. You really don't have to repent and believe. Just, you know, just sign on the line so we can get somebody saved. We want to put you on the roll so we can get you baptized. This man went away sad. Disheartened, it says in verse 22. That's a strong word in the Greek text. It means shocked or appalled. It was often used to describe an overcast and cloudy sky. In other words, his face clouded over with dismay. The attachments of the world were too great for him to repent and believe in Jesus. Jesus doesn't lower the bar and say, that's not what it is. He loved him, told him what the cost was of following him, and let the man leave. Sorrowful. Now, we don't ever know if that guy trusted Christ or came back. The Bible doesn't say that. What did Jesus do? Jesus loved him, told him the truth, and left it there. So, do we want to be any different than Jesus and our And What do we do? We love people, we tell them the truth, and we got to leave it there. Okay. If God's going to save them, God's going to God's going to have to be the one to open their hearts. Now, you can love them. You can tell them. You can persuade them. You can encourage them. You tell them the truth. You pray for them. You you do everything in your gospel-empowered power by the Holy Spirit to share the gospel. But ultimately, you can't arm-twist a person into the kingdom of heaven by lowering the bar. What's our temptation when it comes to evangelism? We want to what? Lower the... Lower what? Salvation truly is. Now, is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? Yes. But is there a cost to that? Are we called to repent? Are we called to take Jesus as our all in all? Okay. If you tell somebody, you guys tell me, is this, is this a half gospel? God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, and God's really interested in you just kind of... Um, You know, your life of sin, you can take care of that later. Jesus is really more concerned about a relationship. So just ask him into your heart. And when you ask him into your heart, um, you know, he'll come and and things will be really good for you. And and we'll get you connected to the church. And um, we'll we'll be your friend. But um, there's really just kind of do what feels right. Is that a gospel? What is that? It's mush. Okay, it's not really anything. But... Are we not tempted to sometimes say that to somebody, especially somebody that's really like in sin? What do we want? What are we tempted to say to them? Like, what should we say to them? You need to repent and believe in Jesus and give that up and come follow Christ. Um, We're tempted to not say that because we either don't want to offend or we think that somehow they're going to not like what we have to say. Um, Jesus does something. What does he turn to his disciples? What he, as a matter of fact, Jesus makes it even funnier here. He turns to his disciples and tells them how difficult it is for a rich person to enter heaven. This shocked the disciples because in their worlds, great wealth was a symbol of God's blessing. And Jesus totally turns it on its head. Most people in that day, the more money you had and land you had, the more you were in God's favor. So they're thinking to themselves, Man, this guy's a prime. This guy must have a good with God because he's got wealth, he's got possessions. So the issue here is not whether one's rich or poor, okay? That's not the issue. The issue is the danger of trusting in wealth and riches as security and personal power instead of banking everything on the mercy of Christ as Savior and Lord and wholehearted reliance upon Him. And what question does the disciple or do the disciples ask? Verse 26. If this guy can't be saved, who can be saved? What does Jesus say last thing here? Sixthly, Jesus explained the sovereignty of God and salvation of sinners who cannot possibly save themselves. What does he say? Jesus looked at them and said, verse 27, With man it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. If anybody's going to be saved, it's because God's going to do that in their lives. Okay? So two examples. Gideon and the rich young ruler. Now let's talk about what's the antidote to coveting. How can we not covet? I think there's three things we can think about. Number one, faith. 1 John 5.4, For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. If you've been born again, you are trusting in Jesus Christ. And let me ask you a question. When you trusted Christ for salvation, was that the first and only and last time you ever trust Jesus? We live by faith faith so the Christian life is always living by faith and trust in Jesus and his provision so what's the root of coveting the root of coveting is a lack of faith in God's provision for you faith believes that God will provide for you why do you covet because you don't think what do you think I need to have that. I want to have that. God's holding out on me. God must not be blessing me. God is not giving me what I want, so therefore I want that. Is that living by faith? We're living by selfishness. Psalm 16, 5-6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The Lord is is my chosen portion okay so number one do you daily maybe minute by minute trust in god's provision for you okay number two contentment one of the main reasons we are coveting is because we're not content with what god has given us we're discontent Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 73, 25-26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Can you... Let's just stop there. That's a nice psalm. To read. Is that a reality in our lives? That's a hard thing to say. I desire nothing on earth besides Jesus. He's my chief desire. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is my strength. What does Paul say in Philippians 4 11 through 13? Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I've learned to be contentment' something we need to learn. It doesn't come easily. It only comes through the Holy Spirit, but it's something we need to learn. Okay, First Timothy 6:6. 6, 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Hebrews 13.5 Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be content with what you have. What's coveting? I'm not content with what I have, therefore I want what somebody else has. And not only do I want what they have, I want them not to have that so I can have it, and I may wish harm upon them because they have it and I want it. That's coveting. I want you to remember two things about money and possessions. Number one, believe that God has you right where He wants you and knows how much you can handle. God has you right where he wants you, and he knows how much you can handle. Okay, does that mean that you can't pray for provision? Does that mean you shouldn't pray for God to provide? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that God is sovereign over your life right now, and he knows exactly what you need, and he knows how much you can handle. And number two, you may not want more. (laughs) The more money and possessions you have, the greater responsibility and accountability to be a good steward. You may not want more as it comes with more accountability. You may not want more stuff because with more stuff comes more accountability, more problems, more issues. So faith, contentment. And then number three, just treasuring Christ. Treasuring Christ, valuing Christ psalm 42 1 and 2 as the deer pants for flowing streams so pants my soul for you O god my soul thirsts for god for the living god when shall i come and appear before god we don't use language like that do we when's the last time you had a conversation with somebody and said yeah this week i panted for god <laughs> we don't use language like that do we yeah my soul thirsts for god what do we normally say yeah, I read my Bible this week. I had a good prayer time. I liked the praise music that we had in church. Pastor Sean's message was good. I had a good conversation. The last time you actually like, had a deep conversation with somebody and said, you know what, this past week I panted for God. I was so desperate for Jesus. I thirsted for Him. I desired Him. Actually, Christians might think you're a little wacky if you talk like that, which is sad. But the psalmist talked like that. Listen to Paul. What does Paul say in Philippians 1, 21 and 23? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Okay? Now let's finally turn to Matthew chapter 6. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to address this issue of coveting and contentment and anxiety head on. Matthew chapter 6, 21 through 34. Actually, let's start start back in verse 19. Okay, Let's read this whole section. Matthew six nineteen, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see the heart issue there? The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light... In you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. How many times does Jesus use the word anxious? Anxious, covetousness, idolatry. What are the, content, what are the antidotes to that? Faith in Christ, contentment in Christ, treasuring Christ, and ultimately seeking first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you.